Good morning. Welcome to God's house. Whether you're watching online or whether you're in the room, I'm glad you're here. I want to commend you for doing that. There's an old statement that is tried but true that says vision leaks. You know, meaning that you, you, you have clarity about what you're doing, but as you move through life, maybe you lose that clarity a bit. And I think that's true, especially of Christian vision, you know, of our relationship with the Lord. You know, unless you continue to come back, touch base, spend time, pray, read the scripture, attend worship, I think other priorities can crowd that vision out and we can lose our place and we can suffer from misguided priorities. In fact, our text in a little bit, we're going to see that that's exactly what happened to King David. Uh, None of us are beyond that. In order to keep that perspective, uh, my wife and I, uh, back in the day when we were raising our boys, uh, had one of these plates in our house. I don't know if you've had one. Have you guys used that ever in your house? I think it's a good idea, you know, to uh, just keep touching base and remind people in your life, people in your family that, hey, I like that. I want to affirm that in your life. I want you to be intentional about your life. I want you to be proactive about your life. I want you to be thoughtful about the things that you do and not just let life dictate its terms to you, which I think um, can happen to us all. In fact, as I thought about that and misguided priorities and how quickly things leak away from us, I thought there are 10 things at least, I thought of 10, there are many more, uh, things that we don't do often enough. Phone a friend just to catch up. Now, I'm on the phone a lot, and maybe that's why I don't do this often, but uh, I think it's an important thing. In, in fact, I've often said, you know, even to our staff, if God puts somebody on your mind, if somebody, you know, you haven't talked to in a while, just suddenly pops up in your mind, if something reminds you of that person, you should either drop them a note or you should pick up the phone and call them. Now, uh, if you aren't uh, in their uh, phone, uh, their prospects or their, uh, their directory, uh, your number will just be there and they won't answer. Uh, but you can still leave a message, and I think that's a good thing to do. Phone a friend just to catch up. Point out something beautiful. You know, I, I got to say that I do this, and uh, it's not to my credit. I was... Um, Uh, Spent a good year, more than a year actually, uh, being raised by my grandparents. My mom had rheumatic fever when I was quite young, second grade. And so they farmed the boys out because we were a handful and she needed complete bed rest. And so I spent that year with my grandparents. And my grandparents were very good at this. They were on the farm. And I think there's something about farm people that notice things more often than the city people that just get so busy with life. My grandma had a bird feeder right outside of her bedroom window, and she would call us over there, and she'd point out the different birds. And, you know, if there were snow drifts over the fence, she'd point that out. They were constantly seeing things and reminding us of the beauty all around us. And I think farmers live that way, and and that's a wonderful thing. I I hope that you do that. Uh, Compliment somebody on a job well done. I've been uh, conducting a, a number of funerals lately. It just seems like, you know, they come in bunches. And I was at the cemetery this past week after having a memorial service in here. And our cemetery is on the back part of our property. And, and I walked back there. And as the cars uh, pulled up, it was an elderly group. But it took them a little while to get to the, to the gravesite. And I noticed right behind the tent where we were going to meet, 
that the fellow who's in charge of our cemetery maintenance and, and in charge of the association, Jim Schmidt, was standing back there because he knew the family and he wanted to show support. And uh, I just took a moment and I walked back to him and I said, Jim, I just want to thank you for the work that you do, you know, out of sight, out of mind. But when I come out here on any given day, the cemetery always looks awesome. And I don't take that for granted. Thank you for doing that. And he had a tear in his eye and he just said, you know, it's just another way I feel I can serve the Lord by serving others. And I, I know that meant a lot to him. It made me feel good to do it. And then a, a day or so later, I actually had one of my staff people who's in charge of all of our pastoral care, and, and uh, she actually gives me the assignments. I'm writing the deeper questions right now, the growing deeper questions, and I just completed them for the next series. And she wrote to tell me how nice they were and how well done that was, and I thought, wow, good for you. It feels good to receive it. It feels good to do it. It's something we should do more often. Think a child's teacher. These are people that spend a lot of time with little people. You know, and they are worn down by that. And it's just a really powerful thing if you come in and just say, I noticed. Because they get a lot of other kinds of communications to them, and they're not all positive. So just thank them for doing what they do. That's a powerful thing, and we thank God for them. Give something away to meet a need. I'm not talking about a gift that you, that you buy. I'm talking about hearing that somebody has a need in their life. And, and you know, take the time to meet that need for somebody. And you can even do it anonymously. It will make a huge difference in their life. And it will make a difference in your life to do it as well. Listen. I haven't mastered that skill yet, but listen. Use the good china and the stemware in the dining room. I mean, I don't know what you paid per square foot in the dining room, but it was uh, over $100 a square foot. How often do you use it, you know? And, and even if you don't have a dining room, and a lot of new homes don't have dining rooms, you can still set a table. You can still light a candle. You can still put napkins down and, and, and not just, you know, uh, pull up, you know, to the, to the bar there and, and eat off the kitchen counter. You know, I think that's powerful to do that as a family. Send a handwritten note or a card. Now, I keep my calendar electronically on my phone, and it's also on my computer. But uh, my assistants will tell you I also have them print out a hard copy, a paper copy of my weekly calendar because I write all over it. And one of the things I write on are the names of people that come to mind or people that I need to touch base with, people that I need to write a card to. And I think that's really important, and you'll feel better, and it really makes a difference. So much communication is electronic. It's nice to go to the mailbox and, and find a note. Take a walk. Just slow it down a bit. You know, we have a dog, and dog needs to be walked, and, and uh, that can be an onerous task. But if you think about it, it's kind of nice to get out there late at night and just walk down the street and just calm down a little bit. Take a moment. Invite friends and family to share a potluck. When's the last time you've been to a potluck? You know, back in the day when we were uh, part of rural congregations or smaller communities, potlucks were common. And it doesn't matter that you have more starches than you have desserts, <laughs> that you have no salads, or you know the single guy who always shows up with a two-liter bottle of something, you know, <laughs> just stopped at the 7-Eleven or a bucket of chicken. You know, uh, but it isn't common in our society. In fact, if you're hosting a dinner, people will ask you, what can I bring? And what do you always say? Nothing. I've got it covered. Why don't you just let them do that? It doesn't matter. You don't even need to coordinate. Though. Well, what should I bring? Whatever you want. 
When's the last time you had a deviled egg or, you know, green jello with carrot straws in it? You know, just all all the things that make a potluck fun. I, I think those are things we miss. But let me give you extra credit. The one thing I think that we don't do nearly enough is to say I love you. And I'm trying to decide, is that an American thing or is that a human nature thing? Maybe a little of both, but I, I think it's more an American thing. You know, we have our spatial distance that we try to maintain. In fact, when we come up on stage here, the staff, when they review the service, will say, you two weren't standing close enough to each other. It looks better on the camera if you're uncomfortably close. But, you know, we have a sense of social distance. And in America, it's probably further apart than in most other cultures, especially cultures from the southern hemisphere. But in America, the only time you tell somebody that you love them is if you're married to them and say, what do you say? What do you say? Come on. Come on. What do you say? You know, and then how sincere is that? Or you're drunk. <laughs> drunk people say, I love you a lot. You know, and just say, go sober up, man, and then come back and talk to me. Or you're dying. My dad was a World War II vet, kind of a stoic, you know, guy. You know, uh, might punch me in the shoulder now and then, tell me he's proud of me about once a year. That'll do. <laughs> didn't often say I love you. And I didn't often say I loved him either. You know, it wasn't the culture that men were raised in uh, in those days. But when he had, was diagnosed with cancer, of which he died, you know, I had about six months there. And uh, I was living in St. Louis and, and went home as often as I could, tried to find excuses to go home and see him. And then we told each other we loved one another. And what a powerful thing. I believe it's something that we should say more often. I think that men should say that to men, and it shouldn't seem weird. Pastor Deanna and I were both talking about sometimes people come up for prayer after service, and we're, we're happy to pray with you. And uh, we've both been inclined later to say, you know, at the end of the prayer, you know, I love you. You know, call me if you need me. And uh, it always strikes that person as odd because we don't hear that much in our culture. It should be okay for a man to say to another woman, you know, I love you. Or for a woman to say it to a man who's not her husband, say, you know, I love you. I'm not trying to cheapen the word. I'm not trying to make it inappropriate. I'm trying to say that by that word we should say, I care about you. I want you to do well. My heart goes out to you. I feel your pain, your joy, your sorrow. It's often a theme of scripture. In Romans 12, it says, let your love be without hypocrisy. Be devoted to each other. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. There's, there's a story in the Bible, and I don't know if you take notes or not, but this you would do well to look up. It's in Mark chapter 10, it's verse 21. And, and, and most of us just gloss right over this little phrase. But it's the young rich man who comes to Jesus, and he's feeling pretty good about his relationship with God and and his behavior in life, you know, it's better than most. In fact, better than all that he knows of. He's, he's kind of proud about it. Uh, but I think he means well. I don't think that he was self-righteous until the Lord showed him that he wasn't as good as he thought. He said, what must I do to be saved to Jesus? And he expected to be, well, hey, you're doing everything. I love the, I wish more people were like you. And Jesus said, well, you know what the commandments are. 
don't hurt other people, don't commit adultery, don't steal, you know, uh, be kind to all people, don't bear false testimony. And the man said, all of those things I have done, what do I still lack? And this is the key phrase. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now, Jesus was about to tell him, you're not as good as you think. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and then we'll see how good you are. Uh, But before he said that to him, he he said, my heart goes out to you, man, because you don't get it. And God wants you to get it. He wants your life to be blessed. He looked at him, and he loved him. The Bible speaks a lot about love. In fact, uh, John, who is described as the disciple whom Jesus loved, said, dear friends— We should love each other, for love comes from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God, and he knows God. You know, if you love, you're really a child of God. You're you're one of the family, and I can tell it by your behavior. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. You know, if you're not evidencing love in your life, you're not evidencing that you know God. And here's how Jesus put it. He even went more extreme. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, you ought to love even your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Love even your enemy. Well, if we're supposed to love our enemy, what about our acquaintances? You know, what about our friends? What about our family? Shouldn't we not just love them in theory, but love them in fact and say it more often and mean it when we say it? Now, I, I know that when you hear a sermon, you think, well, this is theological, this is philosophical, and, and uh, I've got to translate that to life. But I don't believe that about this. I believe this is practical. That, that when you love this way, you will be blessed. It's not just something you do to please God. It will change your life, and it will change the lives of others around you. Your life will become richer by doing this. It's just true about God that loving others is the key to greatness and happiness in life. In fact, Paul, writing to the church at Philippi, said, if you find any encouragement in your faith in Jesus Christ, if anything is in common, if you have compassion, then make my joy complete. Being like-minded with God, have this attitude that was found in Christ. In humility, value others more important than yourself. Not looking out for your own personal interests, but for the interest of the other. You know, love in an unconditional, sacrificial way. In fact, I don't want to spend a lot of time with it, but Paul told Timothy, the man who was going to take over his ministry uh, at the end of his life, he said, Timothy, tell people this, because this is life indeed. You want to know what true life is, what powerful, fulfilling life is? He said, command those who have everything the world considers important whether it's possessions, power, or influence, or fame, not to put their trust in these things because they're uncertain, but to put their hope in God. Understand that that relationship makes everything else work. He will richly provide you with the things that will bring you enjoyment. See, it's it's not just theory. Command them to do good and be rich in good deeds and be generous and willing to share, you know, to concern yourself with others. In this way... You will have a storehouse of treasure. You will be truly rich, not with things that are uncertain, but things that matter. It will be a firm foundation for all your future, and that you may take hold of life 
that is truly life. Life that is life indeed. Let's take a look at our text. Uh, it's the story of, of David whose vision leaked. Uh, uh, the world crowded out God's priorities and gave him a different set of priorities. Now, I can't read the whole chapter to you, but the whole chapter is an interesting chapter and an interesting story. Let me pretext the story, first of all, with some points. First of all, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. It doesn't tell us why, but God was upset with the people. And here's the thing, uh, as I read the context of the chapters previous, um, these people had struggled, and as long as they were struggling, they were close to God. Isn't that the way it works? You know, when I struggle, I get on my knees a lot. You know, I, I search for an answer. I pray to God. I cry out. You know, we go to church. Uh, but things were going well. God had blessed them. They had taken the land, and they were at peace. In fact, they were the most powerful nation, and they no longer had a need of him. They thought, we've got this thing worked out, man. You know, we're doing fine. And God was disappointed that they had forgotten him. And he was concerned for them. And, and so uh, Satan opposed Israel and moved David to take a census. The opening verses of this chapter actually says the anger of the Lord moved David to take a census. But in, in fact, uh, these, this is a different parallel passage from First Chronicles. Satan always wants to trip us up. Occasionally, God will say, go ahead, Satan. I'm going to let you do this because I want to prove a point. And so I think that's how you, you marry the two thoughts together, that God allowed Satan to tempt David to see just how great he was. David wanted to find out how powerful he was, how awesome he was, that he was the world's leader. And so he wanted to take account of how many mighty men he had in his, in his country. Even Joab, who was not a godly man, you know, if you read the story of Joab, the commander of David's army, uh, he even said, David, please don't do this. This isn't like you. David, you even wrote a psalm that said, a king is not saved by the power of his horse or by the numbers of his army. He is saved by the blessing of God. David, repent of this behavior. But David insisted and so Joab took account of the army, and it showed that he had nearly 1.5 million militia. You know, these were not standing armies, but they were people who would come when the trumpet sounded, and they would form an army, and they would fight for Israel. So David achieved his purpose, and he thought, wow, I'm the greatest man on the face of the earth. But as soon as he accomplished that, which is so true of us, as soon as we accomplish an earthly goal, we find that it's not what we hoped it would be. It doesn't bring the satisfaction. Here's how it turns out. Beginning at verse 10, David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away this, this feeling of guilt, this shame that I have, for I've done a foolish thing. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord came to Gad. This isn't a typo. This is the name of a prophet named Gad. It's not God. God sent a word to Gad, the one who gave David advice, his seer. He said, go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm going to give you three options, three consequences for your action. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. Option one. So Gad went to David and said, uh, shall there come on you three years of famine? Three years of the whole nation suffering? Or three months of your enemy having power over you and defeating your armies and terrorizing your people? Or three days of plague from my hand? 
Now then, think it over and decide what consequence you will ask for me to send. So David said immediately to Gad, you know, I feel awful about, you know, what has brought this upon my people. Please, I don't want to see them suffer three years of famine. I don't want to see an enemy come who has no compassion destroy our people. No, let me fall into the hands of the Lord God, for he has mercy, and his mercy is great. Do not let me fall into human hands. So David chose the third option. And so the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from that morning until the end of time, you know, the three days that were designated. And 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. You know, God was in sense saying, you want to count how many you are? You want to count how, how powerful you are? You count, you add, I will subtract. And when the angel stretched out his hand to move upon Jerusalem, the city and the capital of the people, David's truth about God was true. He, he understood that God was full of mercy and his mercy was great. The Lord relented. David knew that he would. And he, he, he paused the disaster and he said to the angel who was afflicting the people, stay your hand. And, and so the, the plague ended at that place. Now let me just wrap up the chapter because there's some other interesting detail, but I don't want to get bogged down in the detail. I want to get to a point. Uh, first, David repented and he asked God to please punish me, don't punish the people. And uh, his, his repentance was sincere. So he reestablished the right priorities in his life. Secondly, God said, well, if that's true, David, go and make a sacrifice for the people. And so David went to uh, the place where he was told to go and make a sacrifice. It was the threshing floor of Arnah. It's kind of an interesting historic note that many believe that this was the Mount Moriah right outside the city of Jerusalem where also Abraham went and was asked to sacrifice his only son Isaac. And then God said, stay your hand. And he provided a, a, a ram for a sacrifice and he spared his son. It's also the place that we think was Golgotha where Jesus was crucified and made the sacrifice for the sins of the world. David is asked to go to the same place. Isn't it interesting how God works? Same place to make a sacrifice to stop the plague. Not the plague of sin, but the plague of death that came across the people. And he goes to this place in Arnon, the man who owns it, says, why has the king come to me? And, and David says, I want to make a sacrifice for the people and stop this plague. I want to show God my true repentance. And Arnon says, uh, king, take the land. I don't want your money. And take my oxen and take the wood and the yoke from the oxen and build a fire. Let me do that for you because you are my king. And David said an important thing. He said, I will not make an offering to God that, that which cost me nothing. Man, what a powerful truth there. You know, we, we don't give for the tax benefit. You know, we don't give and figure out ways to help that don't cost us anything. That's not godly. We want, to co- we want to make an offering that's truly a sacrifice. David refused to let others offer and make the sacrifice for him. He overpaid for the land and made the sacrifice. And God saw the heart of his, of his servant and he restored uh, his faith and he restored uh, his blessing upon Israel. Just two things I want you to take away from this. Uh, these are findings that are true for David, but also true for us. When David's focus was on himself and how great he was and his own success, uh, he was left empty. God was displeased and the people suffered. If this is your goal in life, if this is your driving force in life, I'm predicting that when you achieve your goal, it will leave you empty. It will not satisfy
Only a relationship with the Lord will satisfy, and applying his priorities to your life will bring true treasure, true wealth. When David focused then and, and regained the vision of God and focused on others, then he was fulfilled by that. God was pleased, and the people were blessed. To have the attitude of God in your life is the means by which you will draw close to the king. You know, to practice his behavior in your life. And nowhere is that better stated than understanding the focus of God is always on others. In John 3.16, so clearly said, we all know it, we've learned it as a child, God so loved the world because he loved even the world he gave, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. God loved. We tend to think of love as a theological concept or a philosophical position. But love, in fact, is actually a, a, powerful, a powerful practical matter. Uh, it's hard to preach about, and we rarely do, uh, because it needs to be demonstrated. Uh, love is always seen in action. When you love someone, you get up in the middle of the night and you take care of them, don't you? Because you love them. Uh, my wife and, and I had... Uh, uh, our, our first children were actually twins, prematurely born. And one died at birth, and the other was really sick. And because he had been gavage fed back in the day with tubes in and out of his throat, his throat was scarred, and he had trouble breathing. And, and so we'd often have to sit up at night because he couldn't lay flat and, and breathe. And so we'd sit up and hold him upright, and we'd rock him in a chair. Have you ever held a baby all night long? Man, you might as well have a blanket full of hot coals, you know, on your chest because your shirt or your nightgown will become dripping wet from their body. And we would do that all night long because we loved this kid. And uh, then we'd get up and go to work and not say a thing about it. You do that out of love, right? Love requires you to do that. Because you love someone, uh, you travel great distances, often over dangerous roads, snowy conditions, to sleep on somebody's floor because you love them. You don't do that for anybody. Because you love your college kids, you're going to go into debt to pay for their college. These kids cost you money. They wreck cars. And even after they get married, you may still be into it for a little bit of money because you love them. And and. It may be even embarrassing for them, and they may feel awkward, and it's your joy to do it because you love them. Because you love people, you clean up poo. Yeah, and throw up, and sometimes both in the same night. You eat food you don't like, and you compliment the cook. Because you love people, you worry, you buy presents, you go to other cities. I drove to Chicago a while back after a Sunday morning service because my nephew and my sister, who I love, you know, was getting married. And I drove up there just, and I drove back the same day. Wouldn't normally do that, but, you know, it's a family thing. You go to funerals. You attend confirmations. And you mourn. I hope that you understand this point especially. I, I've conducted a lot of funerals here. And we're a big church. We have a lot of people who uh, have family uh, who are at that place in life. And, and sometimes these people are just racked with sorrow. And I get that. But I, I hope that you see the degree of your sorrow is only an indication of the degree of your blessing, right? 
Because if you didn't care for these people, you wouldn't be crying. You wouldn't have lost anything. And so I hope that you see, even in the depth of your mourning, you see, wow, how God has richly blessed you through that person. Now, you could have had less sorrow if you had less blessing. Who would opt for that? I don't think so. You know, the blessing of my mom, my dad, my son, my child, my wife, my husband, you know, it's worth the pain. Thank you for the pain as an indication of my blessing. God loved, and love always results in activity. He loved the world. He didn't just love those he's married to, those who are uh, his offspring, uh, his brothers and sisters, his siblings. He loved the whole world. He loved those who loved him, of course, but he also loves those who don't love him. He loves even those who don't respect him. And sometimes we say, well, it appears to me he loves them more because he tends to prosper bad behavior. You know, they seem to do better than the righteous. In fact, David wrote a whole psalm about that, Psalm 37. Don't be jealous of evil people who seem to succeed in their non-belief uh, even more than you, perhaps. But when they succeed in those things, they quickly come to realize those things, those accomplishments don't satisfy. If you are one of those people who are pursuing those things, thinking that that next big thing, that next accomplishment, that next promotion, that next acquisition is going to bring you happiness, God is going to use that to frustrate you because he loves you. And he wants you to realize that is not life that's life indeed. Life indeed is to have a relationship with him. When you have that, then all of those things will be a blessing. Until then, they will be a hardship. They will be a curse. They will be a frustration to you because he wants better than that for you. And those of us who have that relationship, we say, why does he let me struggle? Why does he not solve my problem? Why does he not grant this request for which I'm praying? It's because he loves you. And he will use those things to keep you close. He will use those things as blessing that you see as hardship. And through these things, God can cause all things to work together for your good. He will work those for your good if you stay close to him. And he will restore you and you will glorify him. He loved the world so that he gave. He didn't, he didn't look down from heaven and say, well, I just love those people. You know, he sent his son into the world. You know, he demonstrated his love. He got dirty. You know, we don't love people from a distance. You give to people that you love. You get involved with people that you love. In fact, when John's disciples, John the Baptist, when John the Baptist's disciples, the forerunner of Jesus... When he was in prison about to die, he sent them to Jesus uh, to ask him, are you the one or should we look for another? I, I don't believe that he didn't know that. I think he knew that already. I think he just wanted to transfer their loyalty away from him to Jesus. That's my theory. But uh, they said, so are you the one that was to come or should we look for another? John wants to know. And he said, go back and tell John the things that you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are healed, deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them. Which, by the way, is a quote of Isaiah 35, the prediction about the Messiah. I am the Messiah because I get involved in people's lives. You know, to love people means that you get involved in their lives. You give. And he loved whoever, that whoever believes in him, whoever. I don't care whether they were rich, whether they were poor, whether they were sick whether they were sad, whether they were happy, whether they were self-righteous. The Gospels aren't a summary of all of the sermons that Jesus preached. The Gospels are a summary of his interaction with all kinds of people, amen? 
You know, we, we see all the different people, and you will see somebody like you in there. Jesus loved whoever, whoever would believe in him. You know, he, he, he grants them eternal life. And I, I feel sad for people who believe that this passage is all about when you die. You know, for God so loved the world that he gave me Jesus, and if I believe in him when I die, I'm going to heaven. Your eternity has started now. He doesn't want you to perish now. He wants you to flourish now. You're going to live prospering now and in eternity or <laughs> perishing now and through eternity by separation from God. He wants you to enjoy that now. Don't sell God short thinking that this is just a passage for the day to come. Uh, I think our churches would be packed if we realized how practical the word of God is and how helpful it is in our life. We would want more of it, not less of it. We would not want to meet the minimum basic requirement. We would want to maximize the favor of God and the knowledge of God in our life. Ultimately, I think this is the takeaway from this weekend's message. When David was selfish, he could not be happy. It's impossible to be both selfish and happy in life. When we are like God, we draw close to God, and he draws close to us. And the way that we draw close to him, one of the ways, is by being inclusive and sharing love and concern for each other. In this way, we receive God's favor in our life, and he draws near to us, the king and I. Now, the third commandment in the Old Testament is, of course, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. You know, it talks about worship. Every commandment that you find, all ten of them, can be found also restated in the New Testament. And the way this one's restated in the New Testament, I think is fascinating, because here how it's described in Hebrews 10. Let us consider how we might spur one another on to love and good deeds. Don't give up gathering together. Is this the habit of some? I don't need to go to church. I don't need to be in Bible study. I don't need other people in my life. As some are in the habit of doing. But encourage one another and all the more as you see the end drawing near. Now that's how you draw close to God. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, bless us. Uh, Renew our vision. Renew our perspective as you did for David. I pray it doesn't come uh, through difficult consequence. I I pray that you don't have to discipline me to to bring me back into a, a right way of thinking about my life in the world. But Lord, whatever it takes, keep my perspective, your perspective, and your perspective, my perspective, which includes love of others as you so love the world. Lord, grant it, we pray for Christ Jesus' sake. Amen.